This is the Skate Podcast on WEEI.com. Bobby Orr, behind the net to Sanderson, Bobby Orr! For the first time in 39 years, the Boston Bruins have won the Stanley Cup. Talking Bruins and NHL. Sure, old-time hockey. Like Eddie Shore. With writer and producer Brian DeFelice. Brian DeFelice is an emerging talent. Bridget Prue. Yeah, he's a little bit on the hot seat. Burn him! And WEEI.com Bruins writer Scott McLaughlin. Great Scott! Lace him up for some bees talk right now. I'm not gonna f***ing It's the Skate Pod on WEEI. Welcome in to episode 96 of the Skate Podcast. I'm Brian DeFelice, joined by Bridget Pru and Scott McLaughlin. We got a game seven. Thoughts? Yes, we do. Uh, my, my thoughts are, I'm going to blow my brains out if I hear about Jordan Stahl shutting down Patrice Bergeron one more time. I swear to God, that like, not saying that last change is like insignificant or that this matchup doesn't matter because there's obviously, there's a reason that Rod Brendamore wants this matchup. And Bruce Cassie has avoided it, but holy cow, is it getting blown so far out of proportion? Like I tweeted out the numbers of Bergeron and Marchand head to head against that stall line. And that like they're over 60 Bruins are over 60% in everything. Shot attempt, shots on goal, uh, expected goals. And they're two, nothing in actual goals. So like it, we wouldn't even be having this conversation if they, just finished a few more chances like they have against other lines. But even with that, like they're still outscoring them two to nothing. It, it, like it's still, it, again, like Jordan Stahl is a really good defensive player. That is a really good defensive line. But the way some people are talking is that like the Bergeron line hasn't even been able to get a shot on goal against them when they've been in Carolina. And I like, I think that was like almost not even a factor in game five. That was, way down the list of reasons the Bruins lost that game. And I feel like somehow everyone's just kind of fallen into this trap where that's now like the the number one story and the only thing some people are talking about. To the point where like Anson Carter on TNT, I, I guess I, I'm just getting my whole rant out of the way now. So uh, <laughs> Anson Carter on TNT last night says calls Jordan Stahl that dude and wonders if Patrice Bergeron still has it. And I'm like... What what are we watching? Like, what? How do you come to that conclusion that like it's been Jordan Stahl's been so great against Bergeron that you're not even sure Bergeron has it? Like, well, Bergeron has six points in the series, and again has other than faceoffs, which yes, Stahl has had the edge on faceoffs, which is what about one second of a of a thirty five second head to head shift? Like Bergeron's had the advantage everywhere else. The Bruins have tilted the ice. Uh, even when that that that's been the matchup, it's I don't know. I feel like I feel like there's been a lot of lazy analysis. Is basically what I'm getting at. Yeah, there has been. It's like watching the national broadcast. It's been like being in the upside down. I'm like, what what is going on? People, um, some of the national broadcasters saying the officiating was great in Game Five. I was like, what are we talking about? Tony Angel, Tony D'Angelo is a great guy. What are we talking about? Um, so I'm just sitting here like. I've been watching the games on Nesson because I've been having such a difficult time, like not wanting to, I, the games have been frustrating enough. I don't need to hear the analysis that doesn't have anything to do with anything. So I completely agree with you there, Scott. And 
I think the people that are saying the whole stall Bergeron matchup and that line matching up against uh, the Bruins top line is way overblown, but that's only by people who haven't been paying as much attention to the team as we have. And that's why we notice like that. That's not such a huge situation that is like the most worrying part of what the Bruins are going to have to do in game seven. And I also know Brian probably wants to go on a rant because I saw him tweet this morning about one of the a media segment that he was um, annoyed with because it's once again, it's about Bergeron and it's, the, it's a tired story. Like, Oh, he played really well in game six because he knows he's going to retire and he doesn't want to have to that have to be his last game at TV garden. No, he played well in game six because he had to. So season didn't end because he wants to win another Stanley cup the same way. Every single player plays a game six an elimination game. I should say in order to keep their team going and win a Stanley cup, it doesn't make any sense to me. He's not playing differently because he doesn't want his career to end. He's playing the best he can play because why wouldn't you? I don't understand it, Brian. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't get it either. Um, just asinine. Scott even said he's not a Canadiens fan growing up. Like it's just you know Tony Monty like says he's hearing whispers. Come on, it's just it, it's it, it's it's tiresome to, to what you said. Um, and like I tweeted out, I mean after the game he high fived the goalies, last one off the ice, right down the tunnel, right to the room. There was no looking around in case they lose game seven. There was none of that. So, I mean, I just don't – look, I mean, he may end up retiring for all we know, but it's – it's he's certainly not going to play for the Montreal Canadiens. But your analysis um, at, your analysis after game six where there's so much to talk about is, like, is Bergeron going to retire? Like, oh. how about we talk about what happened in game six and what's going to – what they need to do for game yeah. seven? I mean, that that will be the number one story when the Bruins season ends. Like, I, I don't get – it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to keep bringing it up after every game now where it's like, like, why don't we, why don't we wait till the season's actually over? And then yes, all eyes shift to Bergeron 100%. Like I, I've, I've already told Bridget this, like when their season ends, that's number one on like my column looking ahead to the off season. It'll be the biggest story for, for everyone. Unless, you know, unless Bergeron were to say something post game of like, no, I want to keep playing, which I guess isn't crazy because like that actually happened with Zidane Chara at, at least once, maybe twice. And Tuka, I, Tuka said the same thing, but that didn't mean it. There was such a smooth comeback, right? So, but like there were years where like Zidane Chara either didn't have a contract or like you knew he was up there in age, and he said like post game after the last loss, or maybe it would be like on, on breakup day, you know, a day or two later, like I want to keep playing. And it's like, that obviously quickly would end any speculation, but, um, but yeah, it's, that's all, that's all speculation for when the yeah, season's and, actually over. And then you get, Oh, but is he going to play for the Bruins? Yeah. I mean, yeah. I guess like I wouldn't, um, I, I don't think he'll play for anyone else. Obviously I don't, think any of us do but the whole canadians idea it would surprise me it wouldn't shock me only because he has really good friends with ken hughes like that was his agent for well like almost 20 years from even before he was drafted so you know like there is a real genuine bond and affection there i don't think he's a tom brady i don't pig bergeron to be 
in the Tom Brady category where all of a sudden play their whole career in Boston. And then all of a sudden it's like, ah, you know what? He's no reason really to leave if he wants to play. There's no reason to leave. The Bruins are still going to be a playoff team next season. And Canadians aren't like Brady moves on because he thinks he can win another ring. Bergeron's not winning a ring in Montreal. So why would he even leave? No, it would, it would literally only be to be a little closer to home and because he's so close to Ken Hughes that he wants to like help him out or something or something like that, or he's getting paid enough. Like, I don't think it's, it would happen. I'd put the chances of him playing in a Canadian's uniform at approximately 1%, maybe less, but like, I don't know. Again, it's, it's, it doesn't matter until after they actually lose anyways. Like they could, Hey, by the way, like we have game seven since on Saturday, they, they could win. They could be playing another two weeks, another month, another month and a half. Like, well, and Bridget to your, to your question earlier about why people are talking about this after a game six, here's your answer. It's such a, it's such a stupid narrative, but people are talking about it. And that's, that's the name of the game for, for a lot of these media heads. I mean, you guys, you guys know the drill. Um, oh yeah. We it, I was sitting next to a few of them. That Brian was angry yeah. at, so. <laughs> yeah. Um, but look, to your earlier point, Scott, I mean, yeah, I mean, I think the stall line certainly, you know, outplayed the, the, the Bruins' top line in games one and two. Um, I think that narrative totally shifted in games three and four when it got away from that matchup. But game five, Martian had a chance to score early on all alone. He scores that, it's a different story. So, I mean, yeah, Eric Stahl's playing well, specifically in the faceoff circle. But outside of that, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't see him Jordan shutting Stahl. them down. Who did I say? Eric. I mean, there's oh, a yeah, lot of stalls to keep track of. There are, there are too many of them. There's seven of them. There were three of them playing for them at this, in one preseason game, for Christ's <laughs> sakes. Um, yeah, Jordan Stahl, my bad. Um, yeah, he's a good player. But, I mean, they're, they're, Bergeron's getting his looks. Marchand's getting his looks. You know, it's, it's, it's something that they can't overcome in game seven on the road. And bounces have been the difference with that matchup as well. There's been some bounces that just did not go the Bruins way. Finishing issues, as you mentioned, it wasn't for a lack of chances, high danger chances. And so have you um, because they were being so, you know, pushed off the puck. So that but that brings us back to the question. Um, Both of the games that the Bruins played on the road in Carolina, or actually, I should say game five, uh, the adjustment was was made to reunite the perfection line. And it had to do with that whole uh, idea of getting the matchup against the stall line. Is it better to put Pasenak there to kind of try to overpower uh, that stall line with your best offensive players? Obviously in game six, we see them go back to the normal lines um, and it worked out because there was more offensive production from that second line, but with the Bruins not getting last change again now that they have to go back on the road. Does it make sense to reunite the perfection line, or do you go with what they went with in Game Six and keep Pasternak with Hall and Hall? No, I'm I'm keeping it as is. I so I, I guess I I kind of disagree with the motivation. Like I think they were rolling with the perfection line in Game Five because it had worked so well in Games Three and Four, um, and they at least had one line going. But the problem was that. The other lines were getting caved in so much that what you were losing on the other three lines was not being overcome by a single line. So I think they had to split them back up, not not even because of anything to do with matchups, but just because 
you can't have one line winning its matchup and three losing them. Yeah, um, and, and Hala had kind of disappeared. Hall had a really good game one and then all of a sudden disappeared as well. So I, I agree with you in that. And you get to see those three, you know, Marshawn, Bergeron, and Pasenak together as long as you're spending time on the power play. So you're still going to have an opportunity to have those guys all together. Um, I completely agree. I think the second line looks completely different with Pasenak on it, um, which we knew coming into the postseason because that's how it looked all the last month of the season. Um, so Holla gets a goal. Uh, everything kind of looked a little bit different. And then also uh, Trent Frederick drawing back into the lineup, which I have mixed feelings about. Yeah, I mean, the the top two lines, like, it worked ex- exactly as you were hoping in game six. Uh, the second line clearly gets a jolt of not going back on it. Uh, shot attempts were 12 to six when that line was on the ice. They got a goal with Hollow redirecting a, a really nice slap pass from Charlie McAvoy. And then the top line still creates enough offense without Pasenak there. Shot attempts when they're on the ice, 14 to six. Um, Martian gets a goal during a line change. So, you know, does, te- technically doesn't count as like all three of them being out there, but for all intents and purposes, that's a goal for the top line. So they still were good enough. So now if you have these two lines playing like this, it to me, it actually makes the whole like stall matchup thing even less relevant because you can't, you're not going to, you can't play that stall line against both of those lines. So someone's going to be freed up. You know, the problem was in games one and two, uh, I feel like that the second line I thought had a really good game one and then was too quiet in game two and no one was really going in game two. And that's when, you know, you got Pasenak moved up just to try to generate something, but I don't know. Maybe it's the whole, you know, absence makes the heart grow fonder thing where like now that some of those combinations had a few games apart, they, they get back together and they're like, Oh yeah. Like th- this is a good thing that, that we've How had romantic. Going. Yeah. How romantic. That's right. Goss are um, really a romantic. Well, you know, I'm trying to, I'm trying to be like Jack Edwards. Have you heard the Jack Edwards is like intros to some of these games where he just gets like all super poetic. Oh man. Like I, I recommend. I'm not going to lie. I don't. <laughs> I almost recommend that. tuning into the pregame show. One to, to hear my Sunday skate partner, Andrew Raycroft, but two to hear uh, Jack Edwards is uh, like <laughs> soliloquies leading into <laughs> I think they, they're usually like right at like six thirty or you know a half hour before the game, but he's yeah, like, no, how about how about I think I think was it the first home game of the series where they he does the intro right before the game and they were playing Hell's Bells so loud over his voice you couldn't hear anything he was saying. <laughs> <laughs> and so I was like, well, I guess it's just Hell's Bells. Four score and seven games ago, the black <laughs> and gold entered the eye of the storm. All right, um. Yeah, I mean, I think Game 7, you stick with um, the balanced lines. Like Scott said, you know, if Carolina wants to go with that stall matchup, you know, obviously it's tougher to do when you have two lines balanced. Um, Bridget, you said you have mixed feelings on Trent Frederick, as do I. I mean, I'm not sold on him being on that third line still for Game 7, but based off of Charlie Coyle's comments after the game, it sounds like it's more about Coyle and Smith having familiarity with their line mate as a than it is what Frederick actually brings as an individual, if that makes any sense. No, it does. It does. Cause Coyle brought it up. Um, you know, 
we were going to ask him, but he kind of brought it up on his own. The question wasn't completely directed about Trent Frederick when he started talking about him. And there's just a comfortability factor with Frederick playing to his left. However, um, and that's the line that had been together the last stretch of the season. So, I mean, it makes sense. Um, but, and especially after, you know, having to go through so many lineup shuffles in this series, in the middle of this series, it, to get back to that, I understand, um, that there's a comfortability level there for coil and Frederick obviously was the number one guy for the job to start the series, um, gets sat in the middle, comes back. And I don't think earned that uh, the spot back to, to be completely honest with you, he took a penalty it wasn't like an egregious penalty this time, but then it ends up putting the Bruins on a shorthanded five on three. Uh, and that, that was one of their best kills of the night, trying killing off about a minute of five on three. He gets back on the ice because he's the first penalty in that gets back on the ice, has to kill the penalty. Can't get an easy clear two times when he jumps on the ice. And he just, I thought, okay, this is how they give up the power play goal uh, because Frederick couldn't get it out. And then there's other times in the game where he just didn't look completely in place in the right place and make him plays. He should make, especially in the playoffs. So um, I personally didn't think he played his way back into the lineup in any way. Um, and I, I understand no sick, you know, maybe not fitting a hundred percent on that line, but Wagner didn't play terrible to lose his spot. Scott even said maybe no six should have been the odd man out for game six. I, you know, I would have been fine with that as well. So Frederick, what he can bring his, his, you know, his size and his physicality, that's what his potential is. That's why, you know, I have mixed feelings about it because he can do that. Um, you know, he can be physical, but he also is a liability in terms of taking penalties and, um, when he's on the ice, sometimes not making the clears that Carolina they've shown, if you make a mistake, they will make you pay. They've been doing that the whole series. So he's a little bit of a liability in that way where Nosek isn't, I don't think Wagner is either. Yeah. And just before he took that penalty, he made probably about a minute before, maybe a little more made a great hustle play to beat out an icing. And you're like, Oh, all right. Like, Frederick brought brought his skating legs like you like to see that and then he gets too aggressive on the forecheck and takes a tripping penalty or hooking or whatever they called it but um yeah to your point like I think it, it is just comfortability it's they they tried no up there but they don't have a ton of familiarity with him he doesn't he doesn't really bring the physicality as much they feel like there's not as much of an identity to, to that line whereas when Frederick's there, I think that also brings out more of that from, from Coyle and Smith a bit where it's like, okay, like we're going to get in on the four check, hit some guys and like try to make things happen. Um, you know, no second. So I thought no had a really good game six. He had been struggling before that for sure. And, you know, I think he stays in once you have an extra center man, because, you know, Cassidy always likes to have, I think like at least five guys who can take face offs. Um, in the lineup, so if you take him out, you're, you know, you're kind of narrowing down how many guys you actually trust to take a face off. Um, but you know, I, but like I was a little worried because I was like that Felino Lazar Wagner line when they were the fourth line, like they had that identity, like they they were physical, they were playing well, they were, 
kind of creating some chaos like down low. Um, but they still did that with Nosek. And like I said, I thought Nosek played well in game six. So um, that worked out. And, you know, it's just, I think where there were different combinations that, you know, weren't working especially well. And you see like game games four and five where Cassie's kind of just throwing everything other than the top line, like in a blender throughout the game. It's like, okay, can we, can we find something that sticks? And it's like, well, why not the four line combinations that you used for, you know, most of the second half of the season, like, okay, yes, it didn't work for us in games one and two, but maybe we go back to it now and it works better. And it didn't game six. And obviously, uh, you know, you hope it doesn't game seven where, so we're recording this uh, Friday morning, just before Bruins practice. Um, you know, we'll see if there's any changes, but I would not expect there to be. I would anticipate the same exact lineup for game seven. Friday the 13th, guys, watch out. Ooh, indeed. And I have a black cat named Stanley, so <laughs> she's looking at me right now. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, so, Brian, if you have any final thoughts about the Frederick is, thing. because Is it bad I, luck if a black cat walks in front of a podcast video while we're recording? Um, she wouldn't do that, but I had to kick <laughs> Daisy out, so – but her name's Stanley, so I think maybe she's good luck. I don't know. We mm. got her in 2011 when the Bruins won the Stanley Cup. And it, she is a girl named Stanley. Um, no, I have no – Scott kind of said it all with, with Frederick um, and yourself, Bridget, so I'm good with that. All right, want to oh. move on to the changes on defense? Yeah, I don't know all- if you guys were shocked or, or you know surprised at all when you saw that Grizzlick was scratched. Um, I didn't – I thought the defense played well. Um, so I want to get to the Forbert-Clifton pairing – as well as the scratch, we'll start with a scratch of Grizzlick. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I think it was it was it was warranted to be honest with you, and that's not that's not me shitting on Grizzlick. It's just look, he's he's he just hasn't been playing to his ceiling, and it could be injury, it could be a, a, a numerous uh, amount of things, but you know he's dashed six in the series, no points, taking penalties, getting bullied on the four check. Uh, I think if you go back to the Islander series, he didn't have a great series then either. And I just think that Riley stepped in and, you know, the Bruins defense core as a unit in game six handled Carolina's forecheck as better as, as well as they have the entire series. Um, so I don't know if that if that's a coincidence, but I definitely think you ride that for game seven for sure. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, look, I, uh, I feel like I've been near the front of the Grizzly bandwagon, like basically since they drafted him and, and he was at BU. Uh, yeah, really, a little I, bit of his BU blinders on there for sure. Um, but I, I will, I'll agree with you though because I used to broadcast for UMass Amherst back when Grizzlick was in college, and he used to just run all over them. So yeah, so like I, I really like Matt Grizzlick, and I've defended him in past postseasons as like you know you can't overreact to such a small sample size. Like look how good he his regular seasons are, but. This is now, you know, at least two, arguably three playoffs in a row where he's he's struggled. And, like, there's just no denying it. It's, you know, it's the stuff that, that Brian mentioned. He's, he gets pushed around, you know, gets kind of caved in on the, on the forecheck at times. He, for whatever reason, his, like, I think one of his biggest strengths when he's playing well is his quick decision-making and his – his quick footwork, like spinning off four checkers, you know, getting 
getting away from guys, creating a little bit of separation, then making a clean pass. Yeah, no question. He's and, one of the best skaters, defense, defenseman skaters that you can see. Yeah, and for whatever reason, like that just doesn't seem to be there in the playoffs. And it's like there's more, whether it's delayed, whether guys are just closing on him quicker and he doesn't anticipate it as much, or like I don't know what it is, but it's it, the, the stuff that makes him so good in the regular season just – doesn't show up as much in the playoffs and um no question he'd been struggling this series and you know does that mean i think he's worse than Derek forward and connor clifton no i don't but they've been they've been solid together and they've done what you need your third pairing to do in a playoff series forward's been a monster on the penalty kill hey they're um, the offensive pair right now they got a golden right, yeah. assist in the last two games yeah, each of them has a goal. Yeah, it's yeah. Um, and by the and, way, that Clifton assist on the Marshawn goal was the best assist of the game. That was an, a great uh, pass to find, you know, Marshawn sneaking off the bench. So I, I was very impressed with that pass. It was perfect. And it ends up directly leading to a goal. So that's a big play by Clifton. Obviously, it didn't matter his goal in game five. Uh, but you like to see him step in and, and show that he can do it. So uh, and forward, obviously getting the point shot goal in, in game six to kind of help seal the the Bruins win, add a little bit of extra padding to the lead. Yeah. And, you know, just to like wrap up Grizzly, the, the competition was him versus Mike Riley, right? Like once Linton and McAvoy are both back, it was going to be one of them. And Riley started the series as the healthy scratch. You got to give Mike Riley credit. He's played well since coming in. Like he's had some good games in this series. And I think his... He's been involved on offense. He's been able to get a shot through. That's another area where Grizzly has struggled is getting shots through or, or even taking shots in the first place. Um, and Riley's even, you know, no one's going to confuse Mike Riley for a physical player, but he's brought a little bit of physicality in this series. And, you know, it's just, look, it's, it's a short series. You have to stick with the guys who are playing the best and helping you the most right now. And that, that's not Matt Grizzly right now. And maybe the, the injury is a, a bigger part of it than, than we think, you know, it's, it's certain it's enough that, that Cassidy brought it up and other people have referenced it. So maybe it's, maybe it is a big factor. Maybe that's a big part of it, but whatever, whatever it is, he's, he's the odd man out and, and he, he should be. Yeah. I want to finish with my comments on Grizzly because when I've, I originally thought, you know, this was more of a maintenance thing for him. Uh, I know it was a, a healthy scratch, but he's been banged up pretty bad. There's been plenty of times where I was, you know, taking my notes and like, oh, that was like Grizzly just took a nasty one because he was he's been getting banged around a little bit. Um, so I think that there's, you know, maybe two reasons he wasn't playing well. Um, but he also probably could use a little bit of maintenance. Um, I, and listen, you win game six. He's. 5-2, you stick with a lineup for game seven. You're not you're not going to put him back in, especially since Riley played how he did. And I don't think – I've always said this. I don't think Riley is a seventh defenseman on a team. Like, he's good – he's an NHL defenseman. He should be in the lineup for whoever, whatever team he's on. The Bruins, luckily, getting Lindholm back, just have so much depth at defense that they needed this series, um, missing Lindholm and McAvoy for parts of it. Um, and, but Riley is definitely not, you know, the, a guy who should be the odd man out, especially on most teams. The Bruins are kind of an exception right now, adding Lindholm at the deadline, but 
he's been playing the whole season. He can handle it. He gets shots through. That's one of the main reasons why the Bruins added him at the deadline last season. Uh, so he, I was completely fine with how he played. And Riley Carlo has been a pair that has chemistry together. They've been together in different stretches of the season. So I'm not worried about that pair at all. And I'm very encouraged just to quickly touch on the top pairing with McAvoy not looking sick, playing, you know, him and Lindholm getting the minutes that, you know, you want your top pair to eat up. Lindholm looking completely healthy. Um, so no no holding back with him. He got a lot of time on ice. Uh, he made that really great defensive stop on the two-on-one, just kind of slashed his stick at the puck, knocks it out of the air. McAvoy comes in and just cleans Ajo seconds later. So that was – he looked good. He And, and one of the funny things in – some of the post-game press conferences, guys like this time it was Coyle say, we didn't realize how good he was. We didn't pay that much attention to like where he was playing before. And we didn't realize like they're always impressed with him. So he comes back in the lineup. He does what he needs to do, looks healthy. That's very encouraging because in the middle of this series, we were saying, what are the Bruins going to do without this top pair? Um, And now that isn't such a big worry anymore for game seven, which is where they want to be. Well, and they got their feet wet, too. Like, the entire team has their feet wet, where early in the series, yeah, the lineup was full, but, you know, guys had jitters, you're on the road, whatever, but everybody's feeling the series now. Uh, just a couple things real quick to on the on the Grizzly thing, just to finish it up. The um, There's a big difference between, you know, what somebody can do and what somebody's doing. And we all know how good Grizzly can be. Um, and obviously, it's not like Forbert and Clifton are better, like Scott said, but it's, it's a puzzle piece. It, it's 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 who fits where it's guys have different roles in the back end and, and, and kudos to Mike Riley because he, he is, he is assertive. He does get pucks through and he's doing the job that Grizzly is supposed to be doing quite frankly. Um, yeah. I mean, McAvoy, I think that could be a, that could be a series changing hit. If Aho doesn't feel right, which it seems like in, in uh, Sarah Sivian, who we had on a few weeks ago, wrote about it as well. But um, Aho did not have a shot on goal the entire game. So I don't know guys, if I, I know I picked Carolina in seven to start the uh, the the series, but you know I think if you're Carolina, this series should have been done after Game Five. You had no business losing to the Bruins in Game Four when they had both their top guys, like Bridget just alluded to. So the Bruins are playing with house money. Carolina's young; they're going back home in front of a, a, a nervous crowd, and everything has gone right for Carolina down in Carolina, not up in Carolina, Bruce, down in Carolina. <laughs> and I feel like something's got to give now. Hey, he coaches hockey, not geography, okay? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um yeah, and and you know, it's so it's the whole like home road splits in the series are so crazy and like borderline inexplicable because it just it just shouldn't matter that much. Like well, the uh, calls home, have been different. Let's just be honest. The calls have been different. Yeah, in but even Carolina even, like even beyond that though, it's like the Bruins power play has been great at home and terrible on the road. Carolina's power play has been great at home and terrible on the road. It's like, but there there shouldn't be this big of a difference between playing at home and playing on the road. Like like I look in, I wrote in my, uh, I wrote a column on WI.com, like kind of looking ahead to like, what do the Bruins have to do to play like this on the road? And like, I (laughs) make reference to the scene in Hoosiers where, Gene Hackman has them, you know, like measure the height of the backboard, measure the distance of the free throw line, and, you know, says, I think you'll find that it's the same distance as our Jim and Hickory. It's like, 
Someone should do that for the Bruins. Just be like, hey, guys, this is the same size net. This is the same size offensive zone. The blue lines are just as far apart. Like, how about – how about I, I, uh, I just spill my coffee all over? The place. <laughs> <laughs> how about how about they take some home ice and pour it pour it on the ice in Carolina like Nathan Horton did yeah, back in two thousand eleven? And that, and that's a, a good example because that's a series that against Vancouver where the, the Bruins end up winning Game Seven on the road after not being able to crack Vancouver at home the entire series, and then all of a sudden. Game seven looks completely different. Um, that could I could see that being the same outcome in this series. And I mean, goaltending has looked different on the road and at home. Also, we were talking, you know, pre pre series. Um, Freddie Anderson hasn't drawn into the lineup for Carolina in net, um, and it looks like Ranta is going to be back in net for Game Seven. It's a a matchup between two guys, uh, Swayman and Ranta, who have never played a game seven before. Um, and that was Swayman's first elimination game ever last night in game six. So, uh, that makes it a little bit interesting, but I think the Bruins have complete confidence in Swayman. And I, I also feel like Carolina thinks Grant is the guy too. So, yeah. And I don't think you put us, I don't think you put Freddie Anderson in, in a game seven when he hasn't you know played in a while. So, I mean, he hasn't even practiced. No, he's he's not. I think they were overly optimistic. Um, when, in between the end of the regular season and the postseason, when they said he could come in late in, in the series. Cause if he's not practicing, then he, he's not, you know, he's not close. So I don't know when he would come in if they move on, you know, in a round two situation, but their goaltending duo hasn't been bad anyway. So that was a question mark for them coming into the series. And um, both of those goalies, you know, you could throw in net in game seven and, it's not going to be as bad as you originally thought without Anderson. So uh, I'm going to, I'm going to say this and, and then I'll end on my end um, and throw it to you guys to finish off. Cause we're running up against it. But um, I'll say this about the hurricanes. They're clearly a different team when they're playing from behind. Right. And I just feel like everything has gone too perfect for them down in Carolina. And I feel like something has to give the Bruins are going to score first or the Bruins are going to tie it one, one, or, you know, the Bruins get a power play goal. There's going to be some diversity that the Hurricanes are going to face at home in Game 7 that they haven't yet faced. And I just think it's a big difference. I think it's a big difference. The Bruins, look, yesterday may have been their first elimination game, right? Let's be honest. They've played three. Games three and four were elimination games for all intents and purposes. The Bruins, have they have that experience of backs against the wall in this series. Carolina is facing elimination for the first time. They're young. They're at home. I like the Bruins in this game. I'm optimistic. Now, I know I picked Carolina in seven before the series, but I'd say I would change along the way, if, depending on feel. My gut is telling me that this is one of those professional road wins that the Bruins just find a way. Because I think, look, Carolina's crowd, they've had a blast. They haven't been nervous yet in their own building. There's going to be some pins and needles they'll be sitting on, trust me. And Tony D'Angelo doesn't get booed relentlessly every time he touches the puck in Carolina. So, and various other chants. Uh, so he, he really, you know what? Sometimes I don't even see him out there on the ice. And then all of a sudden, next thing you know, the crowd is just like roaring and you're like, okay, well, that's must be Tony D'Angelo right there. You yeah, know, and you know who everyone's in seven was Scott. So Scott, how do you, how right. do you feel? Yeah, I, I'm sticking with it. I, I just feel like the way the Bruins have played in these home games and especially most recently in game six, I 
don't really see any reason why they can't play that way in the road. And like, I know they haven't in this series, but to me, one of the big keys, and this is, this is a little bit of a cliche that I do buy into is the importance of a good start. And it's not, so the Bruins finally scored the first goal in game six for the first time all series. But to me, even more important is like, the Bruins can win if they give up the first goal. They get they did that in games three and four. When they can't win is if they do what they did in the first three games in Raleigh, which is give up the first goal and then give up a second goal like two minutes later, which is what has happened in all three games down there. So, so I don't know if like it, it, to, I'm sure Carolina gets a huge boost out of obviously getting the first goal and the crowd going crazy. The Bruins, if that happens, the Bruins cannot get deflated. Like, they've got to be able to respond better to that and manage that next minute or two. Say, it, you know, call it survive if you want, but be able to like get back to their game and not let, not let one goal snowball because you're not coming back from 2-0 down against Carolina, most likely. Like, it's, they're the number one defensive team in the regular season for a reason like that's just it's a borderline insurmountable ask to overcome a 2-0 deficit so yeah you would love to get that first goal obviously it would be you know they haven't been able to quiet that Carolina crowd in the first period yet but even if you give up the first goal like they have to have a much better response than they've had so far in the games down there because at home I think their responses have been great like they've like I said that they fell behind in games three and four, came back. They came back twice in game four. Um, last night, the way they responded after Carolina cut it to 2-1, like, really good response. You know, get it, end up getting it to 3-1. That's that's so important, and, th- and that's maybe one place where I, I think the crowd, the home crowd actually has maybe mattered, but the Bruins, the Bruins can't let it. Like, yes, it's going to be loud. They're going to be going crazy when Carolina scores. So what? Like you, you've got you've got to fight through. You've got to be better after that than than they have been. No, I can't I, I can't agree with you guys more. I'm scoring first is like it could be the difference because, like you mentioned, they haven't done it yet in Carolina, and then you kind of see them spiral a little bit when they go down by one, and then if they go down by two, you know, backs against the wall really, and um, yeah, it's going to be a lot of. It, Let's be real. Swayman needs to make some saves. He probably, you know, it, that are, are going to be impossible for a lot of goalies to make. It, it's going to, well, there's going to be a lot that goes into Swayman and how the guys play in, in front of him defensively. And uh, they did, they did well for him on the penalty kill. Uh, and Swayman, I, I did like, I was noticing on the penalty kill, Swayman was fighting through screens. Like it, he was pushing Niederreiter out of the front of the net. He, he was, doing his best to just make sure he had his eye on the puck at all times. And he was playing, you know, he's playing a great game. So game seven, I don't think is going to phase him. Uh, He said it himself, pretty much everyone uh, said it. Uh, So he's going to need to have a good game because inevitably the Bruins are going to make a mistake, make, have a failed clear, and it's going to end up going right back on him. And he's been really good on, you know, stopping, stopping pucks and, the Bruins last game in game six were able to clear out those rebounds when he did give them up. Yeah. And, and on Swayman, like I'm, I'm glad you brought him up, but 
I don't know if he needs, I don't think he needs to steal this game, at least hopefully not if the Bruins play the way they're capable of. Um, he might not even necessarily have to like take back a goal or two, but what he can't do is he can't do what he did in game five, which is give up the first goal on, on a savable shot. Like, yes, there were defensive breakdowns. Grizzly turned over the breakout hall and Smith had a miscommunication. It was still a stoppable shot. Like it was still a safe swim and should have made it should have still been a zero zero game. So that can happen at the very least. He just, he needs to make the saves he's supposed to make, especially early on. Like don't, if they're going to take an early lead, at least make them work for it and, and earn it. Yeah, and I think uh, to that point, like I think Carolina's fragile going into this Game 7. Like They seem real dejected after that Game 6 loss. I mean, Ian Cole called it a must-win game before the game. You know, Brindamore, Aho, um, I forget who else spoke, uh, Jordan Stahl, they all just looked like they sounded very melancholy and just like they know they've let some opportunities slip, and I just think that they can't help but think that this series shouldn't be still going on. So I think I think that they're just going to be on edge. I really do. Um, how about Toronto? Scott, I know you're. Uh, what's that? Oh, is it how yeah. about Toronto letting that one slip? <laughs> I would get into them, but I know we'll end up going for another half an hour, and I and I, I feel like we should cut it off before because Scott has to go to Warrior. But yes, and they got screwed by the refs. So it, it hey, we got three three game sevens to watch on on uh, Saturday now. I know that's gonna be an awesome day. I can't wait. All right, Scott, let's get you out of here. Um, thanks for listening to episode 96. We'll come back regardless after game seven um, to talk about round two or, you know, debrief uh, a very somber end to the season. Um, so, so thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you guys soon. Peace.